Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome everybody to episode 11 of True Blue, True Crime. My name is Sean and with me as always is my co-host Chloe. How are you? Hi, I'm good. I've had a week that hasn't quite gone to plan, but that's okay or at least normal. So I'm going to tell myself I'll live. Um, And I'm a bit excited to be back after a week off. We pre-recorded a mini episode to take a bit of a break in between seasons and I'm saving it for my happy thought, but... um, We've, you know, spent a bit of time catching up again tonight after not seeing each other for a week, which um, we've been friends for a long time, but it's kind of cool to be seeing each other so regularly and I'm excited to be back season two seeing you again every Wednesday. Yeah. It was good to have a week off though. That was really good. It Um, was. Over the break, I did go to the comedy festival to see a show and before it, we went to a bar, a pop-up bar run by some comedians in the city and they were doing a live podcast when we were there and it looked like hell. I, I'm sweating just thinking about it and I'm extra grateful as well for our little room where there are no strangers <laughs> watching and judging us. So now's not a good time to tell you about the live Ivan Milat <laughs> episode next week. And that's when I quit. <laughs> no, we have nothing planned like that, nothing that daunting yet. It's just our first episode of season two and we got a really great episode today, a really exciting uh, season for the listeners ahead. But before we get into all of that, a few quick notes about the show True Blue True Crime is a weekly podcast covering Australian criminal cases. We release additional exclusive content to our Patreon supporters on a weekly to fortnightly basis. And you can support the show on Patreon. The link will be in the show notes on whatever app you are listening on. Patreon is super easy. You can use your Facebook profile to sign up and support the show with a simple click, like buying something off eBay with your PayPal account. For $2 a month, you'll get exclusive Patreon premium content access to Q&As, behind-the-scenes material, blooper reels. We tease the next show in our Patreon episodes and you'll get 10% off in our merch store when that's up and running. We've got some new shout-outs this week, Chloe. Yes, thank you so much to Jeremy Ozols, Janine Botfield, Suzanne West, Marianne Van Sudem, Vicky, just Vicky, uh, Nina Colliver, Danny Harmlink, Sharon Croft, Russell Easton and Jacinta McCauley. 
Thank you very much, everyone, for the support. We really appreciate that. We understand that not everyone can get behind us on that front. That's fine. Thanks for listening to our regular episodes. There's other ways you can spread the love and support the show if you love what we're doing. Tell your friends and work colleagues. The word of mouth thing really helps. You can join our Facebook group and share the podcast on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram. We've also received some feedback that there's no publicized email address to get in touch with us. We do read out our contact email details at the end of every episode, but we understand that not everybody listens to the entirety of every episode. So moving forward, we will include all of our social and email details in the show notes as well. So if you'd like to reach out, please do. And if you're up for it, please do give us a five-star rating and write a review on iTunes or whatever app you use. We read out the five-star reviews we get on iTunes at the end of each episode, and we've got a heap to read out today, which is really great. That is great. But before we get into all of that positivity, we're going to take our crime time machines back to wartime Melbourne in the 1940s for our case today and take a wander down the dark streets of our home city. And when I say dark streets, I literally mean dark, as in no street lights or very dim ones anyway. And we'll explain why this was in the introduction, but what it meant for citizens was the normally luminescent streets turned darker than usual very quickly in the evenings, which wasn't a problem until a man who'd become known as the Brownout Strangler emerged from the shadows and committed a string of violent attacks and murders. Amidst the turbulent global conflict of World War II, the city of Melbourne was experiencing what was referred to as brownouts. This was government-enforced action requiring lighting to be turned down to extremely low, dim levels, hence the term brownout and not blackout. It was a protective measure against potential nighttime Japanese aerial attacks. Streetlights were turned off or hooded and windows were covered. Even car headlights were meant to be dimmed. Prime Minister John Curtin had reached out to US President Franklin Roosevelt for reinforcements to aid in protecting a depleted home-based military, and Roosevelt responded with sending US military members to Australia. Aside from the underlying wartime vibes the city was experiencing, it was certainly an interesting time socially in Melbourne, with clubs, pubs, cabaret bars, all flourishing with around 15,000 American soldiers, many with accompanying Australian female dates and groups of Australian soldiers too, out on the town on any given night. Eddie Leonsky was one of these soldiers, and it was against this backdrop of the Melbourne brownouts we'd find out all about the depths of his depravity. Edward Joseph Leonsky was born on the 12th of December 1917 in Kenville, New Jersey, United States of America. He was the fifth child of Russian-born parents John and Amelia Leonsky. He had three brothers named Vincent, John and Walter, 
and a sister named Helen. Eddie's father, John, worked as a stevedore on the docks in Jersey, and he was a violent and bitter alcoholic who used to beat his mother, Amelia. In 1924, Amelia moved the family back across the Hudson to East 77th Street, New York. Eddie was six or seven at this time. John Leonsky died only a few short years later from issues related to his alcoholism. So the exposure to all this probably impacted Eddie, as it would any child. And so being in New York without his abusive father was a fresh start for the family in one way, but also tough because supporting the family had fallen on Eddie's mother now. But Eddie grew up seemingly normal and happy. He loved sports, baseball, handball. He got into wrestling, boxing and weightlifting with his brother John. But the relief from tensions within the home would be short-lived, unfortunately, when Amelia would enter another relationship with an abusive and alcoholic man. This would be an on-again, off-again relationship over the years, but this man was a big guy who threw his weight around when he was with their family, it was said. Eddie's mother, Amelia, would herself have borderline alcoholism and could only work intermittently to support her family until she inevitably suffered two nervous breakdowns in 1928. She would recover somewhat over the years, but it took her and the family a long time to get over this, and really things never really returned to normal. It was suggested she exhibited some mental illness tendencies at this time. And it's probably worth noting here that Eddie was very loved by his mother, almost in a special way to the other children. It was said he was meant to become something special, and Eddie's love for his mother was very much returned. He loved her dearly, to the point where he was actually bullied at school for being a mama's boy. His mother would sing him to sleep in a high voice. This is an important point to keep in the back of your mind as well as we move along. Leaving junior high school in 1933, Eddie took a three-year secretarial course in Brooklyn and finished in the top 10% of his class. After this, he worked in several small department stores before working for the Gristeed Brothers, which was a large chain of grocery stores. And as we said, Eddie was very much into the physicality of life with his sports and weightlifting, and he was very focused on his strength and physical appearance. He was charming, well-built with broad shoulders and big arms. He had a big smile, and as a result he promoted up within the ranks fairly quickly. But onto his late teens and early 20s, we'd see elements of criminality creeping into the fold for Eddie Leonsky. He and his brother John would begin breaking into stores and stealing things, and we often see this minor criminal damage to begin with that steadily escalates. Things at home had also changed. Their stepfather wasn't often around in the 1930s, and Eddie's mum, while still doting upon him, was in a delicate mental state. His older brother Vincent had disappeared from the scene by now with an accompanying criminal record and his sister Helen was taking more of a caretaker mothering type role within the house. His brother Walter was displaying signs of mental illness and he'd been diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia and eventually institutionalised for the rest of his life. This too had a big impact on Eddie. His other older brother John married a woman named May But John was displaying a greater escalation of criminality to the point where he'd actually been imprisoned for the offences for two years. During his incarceration, Eddie and May would begin sleeping with one another. 
and this would be an ongoing source of frustration for Eddie, his relationship with his sister-in-law, because Eddie was very conflicted with his feelings about her. They'd run hot and cold. This was an established pattern for Eddie by this point. While popular and well-presented, Eddie had few people close to him, aside from his mother, and he'd generally keep people at arm's length. In 1941, at 23 years of age, Eddie was in peak physical condition. The all-American man, six foot, dirty blonde hair, strong build, big charming grin and veneer. He's called up for military service on the 17th of February, 1941. While stationed with the 52nd Signal Battalion at San Antonio, Texas, Leonsky began to drink very heavily and he became dependent on alcohol, it was said. He drank concoctions such as whiskey, gin and beer mixed with things like ice cream, ketchup, mustard and hot peppers, which would have wreaked havoc on his guts, I would think. He'd put away between 20 and 30 drinks per session, it was said, and when he'd recovered, he was in a daze and he wouldn't know what had happened when he was drunk. He displayed his strength by vaulting on bar counters and walking along them on his hands. Eddie also began frequenting the red light district in San Antonio. On 13th of April 1941, Eddie was arrested by police after reportedly striking and attempting to choke a woman named Beatrice Sanchez, who may or may not have been working in the red light district. But after his arrest, nothing came of this. And that's probably indicative of the time, the area this occurred, coupled with Eddie being enlisted at the time and the lady not being seriously hurt. So Eddie's service continued with him being occasionally promoted and then demoted due to infractions. He liked some aspects of the military life, but towards the end of 1941, when it became apparent he'd be shipped off to Australia, for reasons we'll delve into more in a moment, but it was essentially to help with the World War II efforts, Eddie didn't want to go. He missed his mum. He felt like he was spiralling out of control. He told army buddies of his problems with May, his sister-in-law. I say buddies, but Eddie didn't really have any close buddies. The only real person you could call his buddy during this time in the army was a little Italian-American guy named Joey Gallo. Gallo wasn't the sharpest tool in the shed, let's say, and this led to him being pushed around. But when Eddie stepped in one day and physically challenged anyone who picked on Gallo, that bullying stopped immediately. So Gallo sort of looked up to Eddie. But Eddie held things together long enough to make the trip to Australia by boat. The Mariposa was the cruise liner's name. The trip took a few weeks. He, along with about 4,500 other servicemen, arrived in Port Melbourne on February 1st, 1942. The US servicemen would march off the boat down to 10 hectares of open land at Royal Park in Parkville, Melbourne. Camp Powell, this would be called. Nothing to do with Cardinal George, Chloe, who we spoke about last week. Floyd Powell, this camp was named after, a US defence major. He was an aviator, I think. And this is probably a good time to set the scene as to why these US soldiers were being shipped to Australia. This is all set against the backdrop of World War II, as we said. So we'll run through a few basics now as to how our country got to the point where US assistance was requested and subsequently the US came to our country's aid. Between World War I and World War II, Australia suffered from the Great Depression, which started in 1929. This limited Australian defence expenditure 
and led to the decline in the size of our military during the 1930s. In 1931, the Statute of Westminster granted the Australian government independence in foreign affairs and defence. Nevertheless, from the mid-1930s, Australian governments generally followed British policy towards Nazi Germany, supporting first the appeasement of Hitler and the British guarantee of Polish independence. On the 3rd of September 1939, Britain declared war when its ultimatum for Germany to withdraw from Poland expired. Because of the Statute of Westminster had not yet been ratified by the Australian Parliament, any declaration of war by the UK applied to Australia by default. Australian Prime Minister at the time, Robert Menzies, asked the British government to notify Germany that Australia was an associate of the United Kingdom. Menzies' support for the war was based on the notion of an imperial defence system, upon which he believed Australia relied and which would be destroyed if the UK was defeated. This position was generally accepted by the Australian public, although there was little enthusiasm for war. Australia entered World War II on the 3rd of September 1939, following the government's acceptance of the United Kingdom's declaration of war on Nazi Germany. Following attacks on Allied countries, the Australian government later declared war on other members of the Axis powers, including the Kingdom of Italy and the Empire of Japan. At the time war broke out in Europe, the Australian armed forces were less prepared than at the outbreak of World War I. While the British government transferred some Australian units to British control upon the outbreak of war, they didn't send any of their own to aid Australia due to the threat posed by Japanese intervention. Most Australians still believed that their first loyalty outside Australia was to England. But by 1942, the fighting of a global war meant that even allies had to make hard choices. The British Prime Minister Winston Churchill made it clear that if forced to choose, he would choose English troops and equipment to defend England itself rather than helping protect Australia against the Japanese in the Pacific. The Australian Prime Minister John Curtin, who had succeeded Menzies by this point, then called on America for help. Many older Australians who retained the traditional loyalty to England were shocked by this new allegiance. But America responded, and from early 1942, thousands of American troops began arriving in Australia, preparing to fight the Pacific War. More troops for the American Expeditionary Force in Australia. Armed convoys winning the game of hide-and-seek with enemy fleets. So this is how Eddie Leonsky came to be in Melbourne at this time. He was one of the first here, and soon after there'd be nearly 15,000 US soldiers to begin with in and around Melbourne, By 1943, there were nearly quarter of a million Americans stationed in Australia, but that's ahead of time. We're still in 1942 in this story. This was a time when very few Australians travelled overseas, and they got their ideas about Americans from the Hollywood movies, which were extremely popular in Australia. For young people in particular, Americans represented wealth and glamour. In some ways, the US soldiers matched the Hollywood image. Their manners impressed Australian women, calling women ma'am and men sir, and their uniforms were better looking than the baggy uniforms of the Australian soldiers. They were also much better paid than the Australians, and they were ready to spend their money in search of a good time. Their own guidebooks emphasised that they were to be on their best behaviour with 
passages like this. I'll try to read this. I feel like it's an excerpt from Good Housekeeping or something. (laughs) But um, the excerpt is, Australians, especially the girls, are a bit amazed by the politeness of American soldiers and that they say that when an American gets on a friendly footing with an Australian family, he's usually found in the kitchen teaching the missus how to make coffee or washing the dishes. Instructions from the American servicemen in Australia. Wow. Yes. <laughs> Official publicity and the broader media emphasised friendship and cooperation between Australians and Americans. But this was not the whole story. Despite the goodwill of most local people, tensions grew between some Australians and the American troops, especially when Australians saw local women going out with the Yanks. With their generous pay, the Americans could buy many things, especially alcohol, on the black market, which Australian soldiers often had to go without. There was occasional outbreaks of fights between Australian and US soldiers, which both sides of the fence would try to nip in the bud immediately to keep the peace with relations. So at Camp Pal in Parkville, Eddie would be allocated Tent 16, Row 4 within the camp. He'd share it with three other privates who he didn't really get along with. The tent had a wooden floor with a little stove in the middle, a flue popping through the roof. And he had a cushy job, breakfast mess hall duties. So his work was usually done before midday and then his time was his own after that. So he resumed his ferocious drinking in a foreign city with cash to splash. This drunkenness led to 30 days in the camp stockade, which was the military prison or watch house. But his release was followed by another drinking binge and a series of erratic behavioural incidents. But there was really nothing that made Eddie stand out from any other soldier as either good or bad at this stage. At this time, the city of Melbourne was experiencing what was referred to as brownouts, which we spoke a bit about in the introduction. And it was to protect Melbourne from these potential uh, Japanese air raids of the night. Uh, They turned lights off, street lights, they hooded them, car headlights were meant to be dimmed, but a lot of people didn't abide by that. The restrictions were eventually uh, relaxed, uh, but the pre-war lighting levels, the normal levels, weren't restored until the war completely ended in 1945. The brownouts affected shopping and leisure businesses, traffic accidents multiplied, as you would think, and the authorities feared that the brownouts encouraged illicit sex in public. I don't know about that specifically, but it was certainly an interesting time in Melbourne, as we said, with all of the nightlife going on and some 15,000 American GIs, many with Australian female dates and the other Australian soldiers too, out on the town on any given night. Eddie Leonsky was one of these GIs, obviously. Sober Eddie was a decent soldier, a good guy, but drunk Eddie was an ass, as we covered earlier. He'd binge drink the most hideous concoctions He would reportedly go AWOL, absent without leave, for extended periods in Melbourne during the brownouts. He'd get in the faces of women on the street and kiss them against their will. He'd jump out from around corners and scare people. So he's getting off on reactions at this point, I think we can see. He was also reported around this time to sing at an incredibly high-pitched while drunk, like his mother used to do when he was a boy. This was the landscape that Eddie Leonsky found himself in, in the backdrop of the Melbourne brownouts. In late April 1942, Doreen Justice was down in Melbourne from Sydney, where she lived with her husband, 
visiting her family with her one-year-old child. She had stayed at a hotel for a couple of weeks, but soon secured an apartment at number 80 Grey Street in St Kilda. She dropped her baby off at her parents for the day and went shopping around the Melbourne CBD. Doreen had been unwell and it was said this day to herself with some fresh air and shopping would be good for her to have some time to herself to unwind. Upon finishing her shopping, she caught the tram back to her apartment. On the journey, she came across an American soldier who politely spoke to her asking for directions to a neighbouring suburb. Doreen walked for a few minutes past her apartment with the soldier to show him where to go before departing company and going back to her apartment. He was very polite and spoke well of how hospitable Australians had been to him. As she was opening the door to her apartment, suddenly the soldier appeared again behind Doreen and without notice shouldered her into the building to the ground where he proceeded to force her into the apartment, telling her to shut up and that if she'd screamed, he'd choke her. Doreen put up a verbal fight, but the soldier was too big and strong and he choked her unconscious. She awoke a short while later being carried to her bed. The soldier was semi-naked and Doreen noticed he had an erection and a mole or birthmark on his penis. As he struggled with some of his clothing, she managed to make a break for it and made it out of the door of her apartment. The young soldier, who lost his pleasant veneer by now, tried to drag her back inside, but with the racket, Doreen's neighbour appeared across the hall and this lady immediately realised what was going on inside the apartment and she called out to her husband. Doreen sought refuge with the neighbour, but she didn't want the police contacted due to her husband's suspicion of law enforcement, it was said. If we look back to this time, there was a bit of suspicion cast on Doreen, stating that she might have invited the soldier into her apartment, but was ashamed to admit it. That's a sign of the times, I think. There's no reason to doubt her story, and I think more likely she was probably afraid of her husband finding out due to the problems it might cause with the pair within their relationship, so it went unreported. Meanwhile, back at Doreen's, Eddie Leonsky clothed himself and left through the back door of the apartment, out into the cover of darkness that the brownout provided, and slinked back to Camp Pell, or a bar in the city to get loaded more likely. But Leonsky, in his haste to leave the premises, Slovily left behind a singlet of his that had his initials written on it in permanent marker. Doreen Justice would take this singlet with her the following day when she returned to Sydney. Not long after this attack, another lady who we'll call Lorna Smith, although that's not her real name, was having a skate one night at the St Moritz Ice Rink in St Kilda when she was approached by an American soldier. He was very friendly and well-groomed, but inevitably she wasn't interested and rebuffed his advances. Later on in the evening, after she'd left the ice rink to catch a nearby tram home, the same soldier approached her at the tram stop and said, I'm thinking of choking a dame and it might as well be you. He then proceeded to wrap his hands around her throat and strangle her unconscious. Lorna blacked out and came to a few minutes later, with the tram conductor helping her up. Evidently, the soldier had fled into the darkness of the brownout when the tram clacked into the stop only a few moments after he'd choked her unconscious. So we know this second attack was also Eddie Leonsky, and we can see in his drunken haze while binge drinking during the brownouts, his mind was going to a very dark place, and his deep-seated criminality and urges 
really began surfacing at this time. On May 2nd, 1942, only a few weeks after these two close call attacks, Leonsky would be out in Melbourne during the brownouts on another heavy drinking binge. Pretty early in the evening, he'd run out of cash and borrowed some money from another soldier to continue on with his night. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ivy McLeod was a 39-year-old divorcee who worked as a live-in ladies' companion on Victoria Parade in East Melbourne. Ivy had been separated from her ex-husband for about five years, and since then she had been using her maiden surname of Dargaval. The tram line out the front of Ivy's home gave her easy access to South Melbourne and Albert Park, an area she would regularly travel outside of her working hours. For one, her parents lived in South Melbourne and her mother had become seriously ill in recent times, so she was able to regularly go there and help her father around the house. And secondly, over the past five months, she'd become friends with a gentleman by the name of John Thompson and he'd set himself up in a small flat in Albert Park. John was a former Australian soldier and he'd seen conflict in North Africa before returning to Australia to bolster homeland defences against the advancing Japanese. But the conflict had taken a toll on John's health to the point where he was honourably discharged on medical grounds. He'd since got an employment as an aircraft mechanic at the nearby Commonwealth Aircraft Corporation's factories in Fisherman's Bend. And John and Ivy, although their relationship was still in its infancy, They'd not been intimate yet, but they had discussed moving to the country together for a fresh start, close enough that they could still visit family, but far enough away they could be rid of their respective baggage. John knew very little of Ivy's past at this time, not of her divorce or of her hysterectomy, which Ivy feared might have implications as things got more serious between them. John was roughly 10 years younger than Ivy, but it mightn't have been that easy to spot. Ivy was a young and good-looking 39-year-old woman. Around 4.30pm in the afternoon on Saturday the 2nd of May, Ivy decided to head out and took the tram down to Albert Park. She had many friends in the area as well, so she stopped by to visit with two of them that evening. After a cup of tea and an hour or so long chat with each of her friends, Ivy left Her movements for the next few hours are a bit of a mystery. She might have gone back home or headed into the city for a meal or indeed visited another friend in the surrounding area. What we do know is that she arrived at John Thompson's house in Albert Park for a visit at around 11pm that night. The visit surprised John. He was sitting in bed reading when Ivy tapped on his window. 
but he gladly let her in and they shared a drink and a chat for a couple of hours after that before it was getting quite late and Ivy signalled to depart. John offered to dress and walk Ivy to the tram stop, but she was adamant he stay inside. She was very familiar with the area, as we said. She had travelled on the tram many times, and even if she missed the next tram, she had enough money to get a taxi from the nearby rank near the tram terminal. So they said their goodbyes and Ivy headed off. She arrived at the tram stop five minutes later, just after 1.45am, and she'd missed the last tram. There wasn't another for half an hour or so. And she checked the nearby taxi rank and there were no taxis either. So this presented her with two options. One, wait for the next tram or go back to John's. She felt that it might seem a little pushy or forward and that she'd had a good night. So she was happy to wait, despite the darkness of the brownout all around her. She spotted a little alcove across the street near a hotel where she could wait. She knew this place, the Bleak House Hotel. So Ivy went over and waited in the alcove, which was between a hairdressing salon and a dry cleaner's. A minute or two later, a man rounded the corner into the alcove and was a bit taken aback to see her. She could see, even in the darkness, that it was an American soldier. He smiled at her and chuckled, "'Geez, ma'am, you sure gave me a fright.'" Just after 6.45am the following morning, Harold Gibson left his apartment to begin work. He was a barman in his 40s and lived alone, and he made some extra cash cleaning pubs in the early mornings on the weekends after they'd had a big night. The Bleak House Hotel was a watering hole for US soldiers. They'd had plenty there the night before, and Harold was crossing the road near the tram stop to head inside when he stopped and lit a cigarette. He noticed some movement in the alcove between two shops next to the hotel and watched as a US soldier walked out of the alcove and down the street, adjusting his cap as he went. Gibson thought nothing of it until he crossed the road and got a little closer when he noticed a woman in the alcove who he thought was sleeping. He went and gave her a tap on the leg and quickly realised she was cold, splayed in an awkward position and she was practically naked, her blouse ripped open exposing her breasts and her skirt pulled up. She was dead. Gibson rushed inside the hotel as he noticed people walking down the street towards the scene and he got a rug to put over the woman's body to protect her modesty. He phoned the police and waited for their attendance to the scene. The police attended and Gibson told them his story about what he'd seen, including the US soldier. A medical examination was performed at the scene and thereafter, and the woman's identity was confirmed as Ivy McLeod. Items in her possession led the police to John Thompson, but their questioning of him and Harold Gibson found really no holes in their story. Gibson was pretty solid on his details and had other witnesses to corroborate his version of events. And Thompson, who was shocked and heartbroken at the news, His story of the time they'd spent together was corroborated by the medical examination of the contents of Ivy's stomach. They'd had a drink, as we said, it was a drink of beer and supper uh, around midnight. The post-mortem of Ivy McLeod confirmed she'd been strangled, had a fractured skull, but it was the strangling that had killed her. And despite the position and condition she'd been found in, there was no evidence of sexual assault. However, the medical examiner offered his opinion that Ivy had likely died between the hours of 2 and 4am and her killer had then left 
and returned to admire his handiwork and rearrange her body, which put him at the scene after 6am. The one aspect that Gibson wouldn't budge on when questioned was that he'd seen an American soldier leaving the scene. But the timing was strange, and it was very possible this soldier, if he was a soldier at all, had simply stumbled upon the scene as Gibson had, perhaps making a stop in the alcove to relieve himself before moving on. So other than this, the police didn't have a lot to go on at this time, other than a general suspicion that it could be a US soldier. And we've already covered how many of them were traipsing around Melbourne at this time. The Victoria Police had approached the military police at Camp Powell with inquiries, and the camp had received some calls and tips, and were trying to work through them. However, as we said, this was the middle of wartime, and as different bits of news on the war and announcements from political circles came out, it caused a stir. The camp was a bustling place, and the Camp Pal military police weren't immune to this. They were trying to work through the tips, and they received a couple of interesting ones. One call had pretty much mirrored Harold Gibson's story, and the other said something interesting. It was from an American-sounding voice, but as if the caller was trying to disguise their voice and they simply said to look for a man who walks on his hands. Meanwhile, Eddie Leonsky continued his binge drinking on the town, going AWOL for hours on end and spasmodically missing work shifts in the morning for which he had been reprimanded. Pauline Thompson was a beautiful woman in her early 30s. She had two young children and was married to a police officer named Les. Les had been posted to the Goldfields town of Bendigo, and so he, Pauline and their children lived there for a few years before Pauline grew tired of the small town and wished to return to Melbourne. This wasn't without justification. Pauline was a performer. She was a good musician and singer, and she was vibrant in the arts. And the war had gnawed away at the potential art scenes in the smaller towns like Bendigo, with all of the young men and women being pulled away seemingly in the country's wartime efforts. Pauline felt it necessary to go to Melbourne to pursue her career. So, in November 1941, she moved to South Melbourne for six months, but then moved closer to the city into a top-floor room at Morningside House, located at 13 Spring Street, Melbourne. Pauline's daughter Caroline had moved down with her, but her son Bruce had stayed in Bendigo with his father Les, as he'd already started school. While Pauline worked, Carolyn would stay with family members in the area during the days and probably overnight at times, I'd say, because, as we'll see, Pauline was fairly active socially in the evenings. But the family planned to meet each weekend in either Melbourne or Bendigo and spend those two days together. Pauline worked as a typist and stenographer at the International Harvest Company and she had a second part-time job working at 3AW in the evenings as a switchboard attendant. And this would have been well before Darren Hinch did the drive-time shift at 3AW, Chloe, FYI. (laughs) Pauline's real ambitions, however, were entertaining and they were entrepreneurial, as you alluded to before. And I think that's also worth noting that she was very community-minded. When in Bendigo, her and Les actively participated in fundraising and charity work, and Pauline had continued that on in Melbourne. She had built up contacts through her work at many bustling venues around Melbourne, one such place being the Music Lovers Club, which she had organised her and her work girlfriends from International Harvesters to attend on the night of Friday the 8th of May. 
Pauline had organised a dance and all proceeds raised were going to the army for the purchase of a new ambulance. And the reason we wanted to point out all of this is because people, by and large, are shades of grey, good and bad of differing amounts in us all. It's not black and white, particularly when you factor the time. Wartime certainly puts things into perspective at the least. But Pauline Thompson, while she was married with two children, found that in Melbourne, while working and building up this entertainer-entrepreneur profile for herself, she also enjoyed the company of other men. And she also went by other names, all essentially combinations of her maiden and middle names, Pauline Thompson, Pauline O'Brien, Coral, her middle name, Coral Thompson, Coral O'Brien, so a few different names. Pauline was meeting an American soldier for dinner that evening, a man named Justin Jones. They'd seen each other a few times in the preceding weeks. She arrived at the Hospitality Club Cafe where they planned to meet at 7pm, but by quarter past Jones hadn't shown. Pauline lit up a cigarette and looked around the place. It was starting to bustle about this time. And she noticed a tall, blonde-haired US soldier nearby looking at her, and he had a big smile. He asked her if she'd been stood up, and she said that she had, and he said whoever stood her up must have had something very important to do. They got to talking, and he introduced himself to her. Eddie was his name, and she introduced herself as Coral O'Brien. They spoke for a while longer, before Pauline thought her night had presented itself, and Jones wasn't going to be showing up, so the pair left the hospitality club to find another place that served up more than just coffee and soda a real drink or two. Pauline took Eddie to the Astoria Hotel in Collins Place, ducking into doorways and seeking cover where they could to avoid the deluge of rain that had sprung itself upon Melbourne, a pretty common occurrence here. So the Astoria was only a couple of blocks from the Morningside Hotel where Pauline lived. They went inside and drank at the bar for a few hours, and they got along really well, and the bartender served them until they ran out of money, Well, until Eddie did anyway. And the pair left, with Eddie offering to walk Pauline home. Pauline had sung to Eddie a few times over the course of the night and did so again during this short walk home. Eddie said he loved her voice. It was around 11.30pm to midnight by the time they reached Morningside House in the dim lighting of the brownout. They had a cigarette together and as Pauline tilted her head for a goodnight kiss before departing, Eddie's hand shot out, grasped her around the throat and strangled her to death on the steps of her front porch. Pauline fought hard and tried to break the soldier's grip, but he was just too strong. Eddie kept gripping as she struggled, her legs kicking out on the wet steps, until eventually he choked the last signs of life out of her and laid her head back on the ground. Eddie had formed an impression of Pauline from their discussions during the night and thought he had a pretty good idea of what she was all about meeting this private Jones and all of her other male friends. So he decided to treat her the way he saw her. He undid his trousers and lowered himself down onto the steps, onto her lifeless body, which he'd stripped off and positioned in a suggestive way, as he'd done with his last victim once he'd finished. He left and took her handbag with him, later dumping it and removing some items. A night watchman named Henry McGowan discovered Pauline's body while doing his rounds just after 5am that morning. He contacted the police and they attended and performed examinations of the body and the crime scene. The body had been left in a similar fashion to that of Ivy McLeod, 
with her legs apart and her clothes removed, exposing the whole front of her body. There was distinctive bruising on her neck, consistent with strangulation. The police would inform Les Thompson, who had the painful task of identifying his wife's body, and the police would run down avenues of inquiry relating to Henry McGowan, who discovered her body, and Private Justin Jones, who Pauline was meant to meet that night. But the men would have solid stories with corroborating witnesses who'd seen them during the window of time when Pauline was medically determined to have been killed. The police would speak to everyone in Pauline's life and eventually piece together a pretty comprehensive timeline of her night in Melbourne. They'd attend the venue she went to, eventually finishing at the Astoria Hotel, where a bartender recognised her picture as being the woman who drank there for a few hours with an American GI, but the bartender couldn't give much of a description of the soldier, other than he was a young man in an American soldier's outfit. Initially, publicly, the police didn't connect these two crimes, but it wouldn't take long for this to happen. They really didn't have a choice. The media storm around the two deaths really ramped up and the landscape changed. American servicemen were now losing their sheen because there were witnesses to both crimes now who had come forward and reported to the tabloid media and the police that the deceased women had last been seen with an American soldier. So this did two things. It gave the police a clear direction of where they were looking, and it was within Camp Pell. But two, it really turned the city of Melbourne into hysteria. Like we said, that romance of the American smooth-talking, cashed-up soldier had gone. Women and men, too, weren't parading the streets in the night anymore. It was noticeably quieter in the venues, too, and women were encouraged to not travel alone at night. Around this time, the press officially dubbed the elusive killer roaming the streets of Melbourne as the Brownout Strangler. The Victorian police detectives were working hand-in-hand with the US military police, who by this time were cooperative and helpful in the investigation. The upper echelons of the US military in the region, which was commanded by General MacArthur at this time, wanted this thing solved quickly and not to jeopardise relations between the countries. This really wasn't good for relations between the Americans and the Australians. They'd been trying to build bridges between them. For a little while, the Anzacs were known as the Yanksacs. And then the story breaks. In the meantime, Eddie Leonsky kept on his wild ride in Melbourne, working very little, partying very hard, and continuing to prey on unsuspecting women. He would confide and confess to his only friend in the service, Joey Gallo, that he'd killed these two reported women. And he'd do this a couple of times in different states of drunkenness while referring to himself as a Jekyll and Hyde type character. These confessions confused Gallo greatly because Eddie was a shit talker, you know, and Gallo wasn't sure what to uh, take seriously. And also, as we said earlier, Gallo wasn't the brightest or most assertive of servicemen either. But he was certainly feeling pretty uneasy about his friend's words and his behaviours in the past couple of weeks. During the fortnight after murdering Pauline Thompson, Eddie Leonsky would attack three other women that we know of, all of whom would avoid his wrath, through either getting away, screaming for help, or with the aid of a family member. Leonsky would fail on these occasions and flee into the darkness of the brownout, and for some reason these attacks would go unreported to police for weeks, despite the two recent murders. 
And you have to wonder the pandemonium in Melbourne at this time. It was an already heightened state of war and now there was a lunatic US soldier roaming in the shadows strangling women. Exceptionally scary stuff. So I think we can see the escalation of Leonsky's behaviours here. He's getting more intimate and brazen with each of his victims as we go along, almost attacking with a reckless abandon. Around this time, there was positive news in the tabloids of the war turning in the favour of the Allies, with the Axis powers having suffered some heavy losses and significant deaths in both Eastern Europe and the Asia-Pacific regions. The news in Melbourne, however, was still one of fear, with the brownout strangler having murdered two women and attacked five others. And as we said, publicly, the Australian and US circles were putting forward a very united front with the victories the Allies were experiencing. And there was no doubt the US presence in the country and the Asia-Pacific had a marked effect. In fact, it probably made the difference between Australia being conquered by the Japanese and actually winning the Pacific region battle. But closer to home, away from the trenches and on the streets of our major cities, the sheen had worn off the Americans, as we said. The previous Hollywood veneer had subsided, and there were other reported attacks too. In Brisbane, around this time, a US soldier was apprehended for a violent sexual assault on an Australian woman. This soldier had an attack earlier in the same night thwarted. And this combined with the brownout murders really breathed life into the now common term used to describe American GIs in Australia. Overpaid, oversexed and over here. Gladys Hosking was a very well-travelled and well-educated woman. She was born in Ballarat and moved to Perth when she was young. She was 40 years old and had recently moved back across the continent to Melbourne, where she originally took a job at Fintona Girls College and more recently had accepted a role at the University of Melbourne in the Department of Chemistry. She was working as secretary to the department head, Professor Ernst Hartong. Gladys was described as a very cultured and refined woman. She was of small stature, with short dark hair and blue-grey eyes. But her passion was for the theatre. She loved performing arts and she would be very active in administrative roles outside of her work for various theatrical groups and organisations. She had been back to Perth when her mother had been ill, but she made a recovery, which allowed Gladys to come back to Melbourne. But since her trips, war had broken out and the brownout stranglings had occurred, and Gladys was unable to relocate so easily back to Perth as she had been contemplating. She was a very realistic woman, and was well aware of the sex maniac roaming the streets that the papers were reporting about. In fact, she'd written to her father about this, noting that it was stressful for her as she lived quite close to Camp Pell, and the reluctance of women to go out at night during the brownouts was very much interfering with her work. She'd recently become involved with the Red Cross's entertainment wing, so she was often out and about in the evenings after her working day, She was terribly afraid to go out at night, she told her father, but sometimes she had to due to these commitments. On Monday the 18th of May, Gladys finished her work and proceeded to travel home with a colleague named Dorothy. Dorothy had stayed back at work to help Gladys with some tasks she'd volunteered for, so they left together around 6.30pm with Gladys sheltering them under her umbrella 
as the typical Melbourne rain clouds began to open up. They went their separate ways at one point on the journey and Gladys went towards her home down Royal Parade to Park Street. Meanwhile, Eddie Leonsky had sashayed into what was now his local haunt, the Parkville Hotel, not long after midday, and he had been smashing pots of VB like it was going out of fashion before switching to whiskey later in the day. He was known by name at this hotel now. Later in the day, he went on to his usual drunken strolls throughout Melbourne, where he'd almost stumbled on a petite woman exiting a milk bar. Leonsky apologised to the woman, who had an umbrella and was juggling a newspaper, a magazine and her handbag. Eddie offered to help her carry the load and hold her umbrella for her on her way home, noting that they were heading in the same direction. This lady's name was Gladys Hosking, and she accepted Eddie's help. He was a very polite, helpful young soldier with a pleasant disposition. Eddie walked her home, but then commented he was a bit disoriented with how to get back to Camp Pell, which was very close, but he was also very drunk. Clearly this was a ruse, because when Gladys thoughtfully walked Eddie across the road to point him in the direction he needed to go, Eddie struck, wrapping his vice-like grip around her throat. She fought as anyone would, but once again, Eddie Leonsky was such a big, strong man, and she was unconscious within seconds. Eddie held her upright for a little while, then dropped her, watching her body crumple to the ground. Then he dragged her body under a nearby fence railing, discarding most of her personal belongings on the ground, and he dragged her up an embankment through some sloppy yellow clay, stopping near a slit trench. Gladys began involuntarily gurgling at this point, and Eddie held her own clothing over her face until she was still and silent and then it was suggested he sexually assaulted her after this. Then he left her lifeless body caked in clay and stumbled drunkenly back to Camp Pell. On his way, he would encounter both an Australian and an American soldier, both who were guarding an area of the camp at the time. And these guys would notice Eddie was caked in yellow clay from head to toe and was speaking in a deranged high-pitched voice and seemed agitated. They asked what had happened to him. Eddie would give an excuse of having tripped in the mud and would ask for the soldiers for directions. Upon arrival at the camp, one of Eddie's tent mates would also query the yellow clay all over him, which he'd give an equally basic excuse for. In his drunken arrogance, he thought these excuses had been accepted by these soldiers, but they weren't. They would report this behaviour to their superiors in the midst of the investigation into the brownout murders. And this really just lends to how brazen and arrogant Eddie Leonsky was getting at this time. There'd also been a couple of soldiers who saw an American soldier walking with the latest brownout murder victim the night beforehand, and these guys would also come forward. Gladys Hosking's body was discovered early the next morning by a man named Albert Whiteway. He was driving his double-horse lorry down Gatehouse Street, Parkville, with a meat delivery in the early hours around 7am. First he spotted a woman's hat on the nature strip, then passed that an umbrella, and some other items scattered around, leading up the embankment. 
Beyond the fence railing, he'd spot what appeared to be a human body resting on a pile of yellow clay. He stopped his cart and simultaneously saw an Australian soldier walking along Gatehouse Street, a young private named Don McLeod. Whiteway called out to McLeod and they came together and inspected the scene apprehensively. It was a woman lying face down in the bank of clay, her buttocks and legs bare, and the rest of her body smeared with yellow mud. The police attended shortly thereafter and examined the scene. The attack on the victim bore many obvious similarities to the previous two brownout murder victims, torn clothing, signs of strangulation and assault. The difference this time is the police had many more clues to go on. There was no way that Leonsky could not be connected with Gladys Hosking's murder. He was seen covered in mud, she was found covered in mud. He'd been seen walking the park, her body was found in the park. He was an American soldier and she'd been seen walking with an American soldier. The Victorian police and the US military police would organise many searches and identification parades within Camp Pell in the coming days, as all signs pointed to a soldier directly within the camp. But initially these searches and lineups provided no identification of the culprit. But Doreen Justice, who we mentioned earlier in the story, who was one of the first victims to be attacked in her apartment just before escaping to her neighbours, she'd read of the murders in recent times from up in Sydney, and she'd come forward to the police since this time and handed over the singlet left behind by the assailant with the initials EJL. So this was another piece of evidence the police had, being able to pretty clearly connect this attack with the brownout murders. Then, as police escorted a witness through Camp Pal, this witness was an aunt of one of the ladies who'd been attacked but escaped in the weeks prior, this aunt was walking through the camp with police when she stopped suddenly and pointed directly to a tall, smiling, dirty blonde-haired soldier and exclaimed, That's him. That's the man who attacked my niece. Military police immediately arrested the soldier following the positive identification. The man's name was Private Eddie Leonsky. At this very moment, Private Joey Gallo had come to the realisation, after hearing of the third murder, that his friend Eddie Leonsky was probably the culprit. And while it took him a while to pluck up the courage, he would eventually report his concerns to his superiors and relay the stories of Leonsky's half-confessions and half-denials. So Gallo did the right thing in the end, and he'd shortly find out his friend Leonsky had been arrested. The police would search Leonsky's tent and find evidence linking him to the crimes. A yellow clay-caked uniform that he'd attempted to clean with the initials EJL inside, matching the aforementioned singlet. And also newspapers opened at pages containing articles written about Ivy McLeod and Pauline Thompson. Doreen Justice and Lorna Smith would also positively identify Leonsky in a lineup as their attacker, but by that point it was really just icing on the cake. Eddie Leonsky, after a brief period of denial, eventually confessed to the murders and was set to be tried, a conviction imminent. He was even happy to drop his trousers and show the mole or birthmark on his penis that Doreen Justice had reported in her attack. There was widespread community relief that a US soldier had been apprehended and was set to be tried for the crimes. But the big lingering question now was should Eddie Leonsky be tried in an Australian civil court or by a US military court? 
this was new territory for both countries, but the US really had the upper hand in this case. Politicians wanted a local trial, but at the end of the day, legislation had recently been passed that effectively categorised Leonsky as being under the jurisdiction of the US in the instance of these crimes. General MacArthur stepped in and wanted Leonsky tried, convicted, and in all likelihood executed by the US, as to not drag this out through the public arena anymore, and really to nip any potential anti-US sentiment in the bud. And that's essentially what happened. Australian powers gave way to the US to take over the trial and sentencing of Eddie Leonsky. In reading about this aspect too, Leonsky would have in all likelihood faced the death penalty under Australian law at this time too, and he was told this by detectives. And I got the impression that he was sort of persuaded that if he didn't confess, he'd be tried and executed by Australians. But if he did confess, he'd be tried by the US, which maybe in his mind might have given him some hope that he'd avoid the noose. But in reality, Leonsky was in the middle of a political turbine and was probably going to get the death penalty either way he went. It was his crimes that landed him in this position, but it was also a factor that this was the last thing General MacArthur and Prime Minister Curtin needed at this time, with the US soldiers and Anzacs fighting side by side, pushing into Burma, and with Timor air raids planned at the time. They were succeeding against the Japanese on that front. But the US wanted to handle their way and the right way. Leonsky was given top-notch defence for his military court-martial. Ira Rothgerber, who later became a big player in legal circles, would defend Leonsky. Rothgerber would later end up working for President John F. Kennedy. And Rothgerber pressed the insanity angle when it came to Leonsky's defence. Why would he get so drunk and lace his own drinks with mustard and milk and ketchup, etc., and sing in a woman's voice like a lunatic? He went down this road pretty hard, but in the end, it was to no avail. Leonsky was psychologically assessed as sane, and three independent experts concurred he was a repeat offender who was essentially bad, not mad, and he'd keep killing if he was ever released again. He was deemed to be of a psychopathic personality, Rothgerber countered with a passionate argument that, although assessed as such, his faculties were compromised, and it was the alcoholism combined with his loss of faculties that made him not completely accountable for his actions. Leonsky had shown no remorse for his actions in attacking several women and murdering three, and the only reasoning he'd given for the killings was that he wanted the women's voices. He wanted to soothe himself with their voices by taking them. And the theory was that this was symbolic matricide. He wanted to kill his mother, but as she was far away, he'd taken this out on these innocent females. Could also be something to do with his sister-in-law, May, as he'd mentioned her a few times to his army buddies, so that's another possible connection. But either way, as we said, all of these theories and arguments were second to the fact that Leonsky was sane and had murdered these three innocent women. After a four-day trial... Eddie Leonsky was found guilty of the murders of Ivy McLeod, Pauline Thompson and Gladys Hosking in just under 40 minutes, and he was sentenced to death by hanging. Ira Rothgerber held his hand as his sentence was read out. Rothgerber also pled for leniency in the time after his sentencing, directly to President Franklin Roosevelt. For 22 weeks, Leonsky sat in the city watch house, 
during which time he played handball and challenged many of the guards, none of whom could ever defeat him in a single game. Such were his skills at the game and his athletic prowess. He received a letter from President Roosevelt confirming that he would be executed. Leonsky was emotionless when this was read to him by the guards. And as we said, the US really took control over the handling of everything surrounding Leonsky's execution after his sentencing. Australian officials really had no say on anything. I think generally speaking, the US didn't want negative press souring relations. And Australian political circles knew we needed the US to win the Pacific War against the Japanese. On November 9, 1942, Eddie Leonsky was moved from the City Watch House to Pentridge Prison. He was hanged just after 6am on what was said to be likely the same apparatus used to execute Ned Kelly. Leonsky joked before his execution, So long, pal. They're going to give me a facelift. The only Australian official present at Leonsky's hanging was the leather-clad and masked hangman. Everyone else was American. No official records of his hanging were ever contained within Pentridge Prison Records, just the hangman's diary. And while Victoria's law at the time dictated that a hanged body needed to remain in the noose for one hour after the drop to ensure they were dead, the US had no need to abide by this. Leonsky was removed from the noose only minutes after his hanging and declared dead about seven minutes after this. His body would be transported here, there and everywhere in the years after. He was buried three times in two different locations within Australia's Springvale Cemetery. In 1945, he was moved to Manson Park American War Cemetery in Ipswich, Queensland. And then in 1947, when the US decided they wouldn't have a permanent cemetery in Australia, Leonsky was again exhumed and transported across the Pacific to a mausoleum and then a different distribution centre for nine months. Finally, on the 14th of April 1949, Eddie Leonsky reached his final destination, Plot 9, Row B, Grave 8, at the Schofield Barracks Post Cemetery. Where he's buried is basically this segregated part of the cemetery for dishonourably discharged soldiers. This plot isn't marked or advised about in the cemetery maps. It's very much a hushed area that's only there because it has to be. Leonsky's case was a sensation in Australia at the time, but in the US it was very much kept quiet. There would be books written about him. Ivan Chapman apparently wrote one. Another guy named Andrew Mallon, I think it was, wrote one. And there was a third rare one by someone whose name escapes me at the moment, but it's an old archive text that's not available for the public anyway. And the one I used in researching this, the most recent, Murder at Dusk by Ian W. Shaw. There was also a movie made in the 80s based on Leonsky's murder spree entitled Death of a Soldier, starring James Coburn. So that's pretty much a wrap for Eddie Leonsky the brownout strangler from the US of A who terrorised the streets of wartime Melbourne in 1942. It's interesting, 1942 seems like such a long time ago and often crimes like these to me seems like an issue for modern times that because of things that we've developed over the years that people are more dysfunctional and these crimes happen and I kind of disconnect these things. I know Jack the Ripper and there are some really famous old cases, but I don't often think about these kind of seemingly typical murders, I guess. Typical sounds awful, but 
you know, something that you could imagine happening any day now, happening in a bygone era. It seems maybe I have a romanticised view of it and, you know, this was the war and people were going through some messed up stuff. But this case is just seems so shocking for the time and um, the brownout strangler I didn't realise was Eddie Leonsky at first when we started researching this but I've, I've heard of this person, you know, he's one of I think a famous serial killer for me. Um, and, you know, the psychological aspect of this case is so alarming. I think it would maybe have been investigated and we might have some more information on it if it had happened closer to today. But there was obviously some pretty big issues there between Leonsky and his mum. And, yeah, I just I wonder what had happened between them or within their family beyond his father's alcoholism and his stepfather's alcoholism. It's all very complex and very complicated. Um, and, yeah, I think what a story. Yeah, I tend to agree with the the disconnection thing you were saying there. For me, I think researching and writing about a case like this, it's almost like fiction Yeah, because, you know, we, we weren't alive at that time. And while I had some family alive and have some, you know, heard some stories about our country's involvement in World War II, it's really easy to have less of an emotive response to the death of three women and the attacks on the other four women too that we know of um, because of the times. And I think we can always relate to something more recent that we might share some similarities with, something like the Jill Maher case, for example. But in reality, three women lost their lives to this monster. They had families of their own. They had partners, mothers, you know, they were mothers, they were you know, they had uh, fathers, they children in some cases. And to think in such a heightened state, being wartime, to have your loved one taken from you in, in such a devastating fashion and by a soldier from a country who was meant to be your ally um, would just be shocking and devastating uh, thing to experience. And I really feel for the family and friends of Leonsky's victims and the victims themselves too, obviously. I mean, for all intents and purposes, they were all vibrant women contributing to society in different ways. So it's just a shame. Yeah. Leonsky, once again, it's easy to have a disconnect emotionally when thinking about him. He's very much a, a man from a, a bygone era. But if I, I think about him in modern day parlance, if we, if we think of the impact it would have now if our country was at war and a soldier, foreign or local for that matter, was prowling the streets during enforced brownouts, it would be... Uh, really terrifying, I think. And with that in mind, there's no other way to put this than Leonsky was an absolutely psychopathic sexual sadist. I think he's a real piece of shit. He was the prototypical charmer, self-obsessed, capable of turning it on and luring a woman away from the crowd, kind of like Ted Bundy in some ways, and then striking in a manner to satisfy his urges. There was a lot of references, as you mentioned, uh, Chloe, in the research about his motives being focused on stealing the voices of these women that he murdered in a sort of symbolic nod to his mother, how much he loved her, but also wanted to kill her. I'm no psychologist, and I think it's certainly a plausible connection on a surface level. But to me, I think this guy's motives were a lot plainer than that. I think if we look at the escalation of his criminality, that of his brothers and the mental illness in his family also, I think it's more likely this guy was a straight-up sexually motivated psychopath. And the voices thing is really a side note. Maybe it was a sort of his way or his justification or plucking some reasoning out of the air and when he was being interviewed. 
The sexual assault aspects also seem to be downplayed in researching material from the time. It was often referred to as criminally assaulted in the uh, old newspaper articles, and it seemed that obviously the forensic means weren't what they were and what they are today. They weren't uh, advanced enough at the time to have this confirmed, but I think that was intertwined with the strangling as the primary motivator for Eddie Leonsky. I think it's complicated and there's so much that we don't know because of what was available at the time, isn't it? Even the way they talk, yeah. like the language used, yeah. But uh, terrifying stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so do you have a happy thought this week? Yeah, I do, actually. I've been going to a few – there's a lot of little coffee shops around in my work and I've been going to each one, you know, every couple of days I'll go to one and try one. I've finally, like, narrowed it down and nailed – my favorite little coffee shop near work now. Yeah. And it was the last one I tried and it was probably the least trendy one Ah. too. Yeah. So that's, it's not a, it's not a major deal, but (laughs) it's nice to sort of have that narrowed down. I've got my go-to now in the morning. Bang. Coffee and comfort. It's important. Yeah, definitely. And uh, my happy thought, well, first of all, we've been getting good feedback on our happy thoughts and I do need to acknowledge that I'm a murderino. I love my favourite murder. And I was heavily directly inspired (laughs) by a segment they have at the end of their uh, show called Fucking Hooray where they talk about something positive at the end of um, all the murder. So um, thank you for everyone who loves it, but it definitely wasn't my idea. (laughs) (laughs) Um, My happy thought is that we hang out regularly now, that, um, you know, Sean and I have been friends since high school, which is over 15 years now. And, you know, we're both busy with work and life and we always say that we don't get to hang out as much as we want. Um, And having a week off made me really grateful for our friendship and the fact that we're doing this together. That's really not. I couldn't see what you'd written because you updated it after I... (laughs) I tricked you. That's the way I can talk about feelings. Let's never talk about it again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's five-star reviews. We have quite a few to get through. So um, if you want your shout-out, continue on. And if you're not into it, skip the next two minutes or so. (laughs) Um, So the first one is from someone called Conan118. And their review is, loving your podcast, guys. Great detail and descriptions. I'll give you a chop out and read a couple because you normally do them, but there's so many. (laughs) Okay. The next one is by, uh, is that J79? Yeah. And it's awesome podcast. Thanks for all of your hard work with the great research. I thoroughly enjoy listening to and from work. Keep up the great work. And Sean, keep coming up with the great name calling. <laughs> you yeah, trust you'd pick that one. <laughs> and the next one is from Hater 809 a, a new favorite. This podcast has quickly become one of my favorites. Very well researched and delivered. It's one I look forward to each week. Keep up the great work, guys. The next one is by Goodbye Name. Love your work. Just found your podcast, binging it. You both do a great dive into the crimes, especially love your happy moment at the end. Leaves me on a positive. The next one is from 4ZZ3J. Says, great listening. This podcast has a great mix of excellent research, interesting content, and a couple of passionate presenters that have not failed to keep me hanging on every word. Some podcasts of this genre try to present an unbiased but I love how these guys are not afraid to speak their mind about some of the sickos covered in their episodes. The happy thought at the end is a great way to finish the episode. 
I have been hesitant to pay for podcast content, but your extra episodes are far worth far more than the $2 a month. Keep up the great work, guys. Excellent. The next one is by Christy Lee123. And it says, great job, well-researched, delivered very well. Keep them coming. The next one is by Not Bell, and it says, love. Need a Twitter so I can tweet you guys. Also love this pod. Always looking for new ones to binge, especially Aussie ones. Um, maybe we'll get a Twitter, but I'm not very good at it. So <laughs> I'm sorry, not Belle. But, You'll be um, better than me. <laughs> <laughs> um, we do have a Facebook and an Insta though. <laughs> Next one is by Ron Rick. It says, great podcast. Recommended to me by a friend. I was instantly addicted due to the thorough and straightforward presentation of two very likable presenters. Great job too on the lesser known cases. And the last one for today is by Tezza Girl. It says, very easy to listen to. Great cases and well researched. Glad I found this podcast and thank you. Um, thank you, everyone. Thank you for taking the time to review us, to think of what you like about our podcast and put it down. It helps us so much and it means so much to us. It helps other people find us. And if you have any case suggestions, feedback or questions, you can email us at truebluecrime at gmail.com or if you want, you can join our Facebook group, which is called True Blue True Crime Dash Podcast or find us on Instagram by searching True Blue Crime. And speaking of feedback, we were provided with some information in our week off about the Catherine Knight episode. This was relating to where she is currently imprisoned. The publicly available information online says that she's at Silverwater Women's Correctional, but apparently that's not the case. Yeah, well, we got the word she'd been moved to a lower security prison, which was a surprise to hear considering the crime that she committed. But sure enough, I fact-checked that info and I called Silverwater Correctional myself this week and they did indeed confirm that Catherine Knight had been transferred to Dilwinia Women's Correctional in New South Wales some time ago. So it's, I mean, it's not a huge point, but it was factually incorrect, so we thought it important to check out and uh, and correct. I didn't update the Wikipedia, though, because I don't know how to do that. So. <laughs> not our job. No. <laughs> Next week, we're covering a case that I'm morbidly excited about. In our own display of solidarity and fairness to our brothers and sisters from the great US of A, without whom we'd possibly be presenting this podcast to you in Japanese, We'll be covering the case of an Australian-born serial killer who lured and brutalised women on US soil. We'll talk more about that on our Patreon episode this week. We're doing a Season 1 debrief over there, so if you want the inside scoop the week before our main episode comes out, head on over to www.patreon.com forward slash truebluecrime and sign up. But that's it for us, guys. Thanks very much for listening and we will catch you all again next week. Thank you. Bye.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 